I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 30th, 2017. Coming up, part one of our graduation edition, where we talk to recent or soon-to-be PhD science students about their thesis work and what the future has in store for them. With graduation season upon us, or in many cases in the rearview mirror, today's edition of How on Earth is the first of a two-part annual graduation special. Our guests in the studio today are scientists who recently graduated with, or soon will receive, their PhD. So yes, these are people who felt that after completing those undergraduate years in college, they wanted to spend another four or five or six or more years in graduate school to learn more and to significantly greater depth in their fields. We have two freshly minted PhDs and one who is soon to defend, and they are here to talk about their thesis research, their grad school experience, and what they have planned next. We have Morgan Renberg from CU Boulder Department of Astrophysical and Planetary Sciences we have David Horvath from Colorado School of Mines, Department of Geophysics. And we have Joseph Lee from the CU Boulder Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences. So welcome to How on Earth, Morgan, David, and Joseph. Good morning. Thank you. Let's start here, Morgan, with you, if we may. And let's just talk a little about your thesis work. So first, give me the title of your thesis. My thesis was titled Small Scale Structure in Saturn's Rings. And what I was trying to do was provide a new perspective on how we look at something that we've probably all uh, thought about at some point. Saturn's kind of uh, what we think of often when we think of planets in the solar system. You have those big, beautiful rings. But Everybody's favorite planet, exactly. right? Exactly. We're looking at it sort of from the 30,000-foot view if 30,000 feet were a million miles. Uh, and that means that when we look at a picture, even the very best pictures of Saturn, we're seeing the rings on the city block scale. And you can imagine if you were trying to study a city, Boulder or New York or L.A., and all you could see was one pixel for every city block. You wouldn't have any idea, really, what was going on inside uh, that city. And what I wanted to do was look closer and look at what's really going down sort of on street level. Uh, because the rings look incredibly smooth, sort of simple, sweeping when you look at them from afar. But when you get down and really look close at them... Uh, it's much more dynamic. It looks kind of like a braided afghan with these thick areas and these thin areas uh, that combine together to, to give us what we see when we look from afar. So how do you go from a global view? How do you get the street view? Yeah, that's a great question. We have to make some compromises when we do it. So if we take a picture... Uh, from where? From the Cassini spacecraft, which ah. has been in orbit about Saturn now for the last 13 years. It'll be crashing this coming September in one fiery finale as it plunges <laughs> into the planet. I uh, Take a picture like that. You get a nice two-dimensional view, but you get this city block view. Okay, so so you have the advantage that uh, rather than looking distant, you get to kind of drive into the neighborhood a little bit That's and right. see what's going on. 
Yeah, and so what we have is a really simple experiment on Cassini where we measure the brightness of stars as they pass behind the rings. And you can imagine that the more stuff between us and the star, the dimmer the star is going to look. And so we make brightness measurements up to a thousand times a second as that star passes behind the rings, and we can understand the density of the ring in much greater detail than we could with a picture. So, so let's describe the rings here for a minute. Some people may have had the luck of looking through a telescope or seeing beautiful pictures of these rings, you know, and they look like these nice solid disks going around Saturn. But... That's not exactly what they're like, right? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. The rings are made up of an almost uncountable number of tiny particles of nearly pure ice. This is the kind of ice that you would have uh, in your fridge. If you took a hammer and smashed an ice cube, that's the kind of uh, particles that would be making up the rings. And the rings are incredibly flat, incredibly thin. So how thin are we talking here? Yeah, so this ring stretch tens of thousands of kilometers or tens of thousands of miles. How wide they uh, are. That's right, exactly. From the closest point to Saturn to the farthest part away is tens of thousands of kilometers, and yet the rings are no more than, say, one story thick. So they're a thousand times thinner uh, than a human hair. So they're incredibly thin. Incredibly thin. Okay. And so your thesis, you said you were observing stars going behind the rings. Exactly. What did that tell you? Yeah, so even in that small amount of material, it blocks light from uh, the star. You can imagine holding up a sheet of newspaper in front of a light. It's really thin, but it's still going to block some of that light. And so the more the star's light was blocked, the more stuff there must be there blocking. And so we could make a one-dimensional map of how dense uh, the rings are, and then we do that again and again from different places, and we can start to see how things change with uh, different locations in the rings, how things change across time in the rings. And we give up that ability to sort of see that nice two-dimensional uh, view, but in exchange we can see... Uh, a hundred times basically more detail in the rings than what we could get with the best pictures. So you had you had to tell the spacecraft, you or someone you're Somebody working with. Somebody much smarter than I had to tell the spacecraft. <laughs> had to tell the spacecraft to point at this star at this particular time to monitor, like, see the density changes. Exactly. And as the spacecraft orbits around Saturn, its perspective changes against the background stars. And so a star that was at one point you know, off uh, away from Saturn now appears like it's traveling behind uh, Saturn, even if the stars themselves aren't moving uh, relative to the planet. And what surprised you, or what did you find out? Yeah, we found out uh, that these uh, structures that are really small, we're talking sort of the size of your typical house, uh, there we found that there were areas where there was almost no ring particles at all, and then areas where there were many more ring particles than you would expect. And depending on the angle that you look at those, you can explain these really large-scale changes in the brightness of the rings that we've known about uh, before we even started launching rockets off the Earth. All right. Well, so we've learned more about Saturn's rings by looking at distant stars. That's actually pretty cool there. All right. Well, let me let me move to our next guest here, David. And there's actually still a Saturn connection here, too, I believe, right? right? right. So uh, what is the title of your thesis? Um, well, the, the shortened version would be uh, <laughs> planetary hydrology, or really the, the investigation of the, the water cycle uh, or, or water cycle-like processes on uh, Mars and Titan, in this case. And, um, and the connection to Saturn here was? Right. Uh, well, Titan is uh, you know the largest moon of Saturn. Um, and, and really, that's that's where my research started. Uh, you know, looking at 
you know, like uh, Morgan said, you know, ice or water in, you know, the Saturn system is mostly ice. And so Titan's crust, like rock here, is is water ice. Uh, but what you have on the surface are these kind of uh, hydrocarbon lakes or methane, ethane, things we think of as, as natural gas on Earth, uh, but in liquid form because it's it's so cold. Um, and they behave very similar to uh, kind of the water cycle on, on Earth. So you have, you know, uh, rivers flowing, uh, these large lakes on the surface, and even these kind of clouds and potentially rainfall and, and evaporation. So. And so that whole thing is a hydrologic cycle. Right, right. So going, but, but with, uh, with methane, <laughs> with yeah, methane. As, the, as the main constituent, right. So you have methane as the active liquid right. on the surface. Right. So you were studying the i don't know if you'd call it a hydrologic cycle You're more of a i guess methodologic <laughs> me, yeah yeah <laughs> on on titan but then you study the same thing on mars right so on mars looking uh, more at the the past uh the the paleo hydrologic cycle so um you have these uh well where curiosity is in gale crater you have uh indications of past lakes uh so these these shoreline indicators um and and kind of wetter a uh, wetter period um so using uh, again hydrologic models uh, numerical models to kind of inform and constrain the past climate on mars um to really get at you know the the behavior and and how how the climate changed on Mars uh, through time. Um, so, so you can use the same model for water and with, for with methane? With some changes. Um, yeah, I mean, the methane model, uh, you know, you have really different kind of, uh, I guess, parameters that go in. Um, you know, methane's less viscous. Uh, you know, water, you have... Uh, well, you're more viscous, more dense, and so using a, a similar model but with, with different parameters. So uh, you mentioned the different viscosity mm -hmm. of the methane, for right. example. So does that create different features on the surface versus what you'd get with water? Or um, I mean, it, it appears very similar uh, just from uh, Cassini images. Uh, you know, you have uh, shorelines that look very similar to, to seas on Earth and, and shorelines on Earth. Um, so there, there is some difference, but uh, but it looks to behave very similar at this uh, in these conditions. So so what did you what did you find in studying these two seemingly very different right. solar system bodies? Um, you know, my focus was really on the kind of subsurface, so groundwater or ground methane in the case of Titan, um, and you know that has a, a really a big uh, contribution to kind of um, the hydrologic cycle, and it's something that I think isn't thought about as much. That you you may have this groundwater contributing to lakes or uh, or past lakes on Mars, um, and and so incorporating that really you, you kind of see how uh, that influences the formation of lakes on both these bodies. So to understand the the ground the subground or ground liquid, would, uh, you have to know something about the surface itself, the properties right. of the surface. And right. so uh, how similar or different are Titan versus Mars? Uh, I mean, on Titan, you do have this ice. Uh, on Mars, you have, you know, rock. Um, they're, I guess, similar in the case that, you know, they're both kind of likely fractured bodies. You know, Mars, you've just been kind of pounded by impacts uh, early in its its history and so you've broken up the surface ice you know also will will be broken up um, 
on Titan. And so, you know, you, you have this kind of porous media that you're able to flow through. Um, so what did you find in your thesis work, perhaps, that you didn't expect when you started? That was a surprise or right. a good uh, result. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, well, really, I guess the importance of this subsurface flow, um, you know, how it can kind of influence the, the distribution of lakes on Titan, you know, and in, including this, um, you know, really has a big effect on, on where lakes form, how they form, um, and whether or not you get these kind of larger seas uh, at Titan's North Pole. And, and now that you've finished your thesis and have these conclusions, what would be next? I mean, or, or how do they yeah. fit in the bigger picture of right. planet formation or, or right, Earth? Right. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, looking at kind of the change in the climate on Mars is, uh, you know, interesting for potentially changing going the there <laughs> on, on earth well yeah um but you know understanding these processes and why why it's changed and, and what that kind of climate history looked like on mars uh, i think is important to to link to earth well, well excellent thank you very much um for those of you who just tuned in you are listening to how on earth the kgnu science show i'm joel parker and i'm here with three uh graduate or postgraduate, postgraduated PhD students. Uh, we've already heard from Morgan Renberg and David Horvath. And so next, I'd like to go to our third guest, Joseph Lee uh, from CU Boulder, Department of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences. Welcome, Joseph. Hello. So Joseph, what was, well, actually, I was going to say, what was your thesis work? But you're actually, you haven't defended yet. So nope. what, what do you think your thesis title will be? <laughs> so my thesis will be about wind energy and mostly how wind turbines interact with our atmosphere. And, and so you're looking at wind turbines in wind farms. Yes. And how uh, perhaps they are efficient or something like that? Are you looking at efficiency of the turbines or weather effects or something like that? So uh, let's, take a, uh, let's think about a river say a river flowing upstream to downstream say Boulder Creek and then you put a stone in the middle of the river and then there will be some wiggles behind the stone say downstream of the river and uh, in the atmosphere the wind turbines actually do the same thing to our air when winds blowing from one direction to another so how these wiggles or we call wick effects which is a reduction in wind speed or increase in turbulence, et cetera, that how it interacts with the environment and how uh, upwind turbines changes the down, uh, downwind turbines power production. So these, these wake effects, you're, you're modeling these? Yes. Um, is, it, is it very similar to modeling you know, flow and wake effects like you said in a river? Is it pretty much you're using the same model code or something like that? So there are many different ways to uh, observe or model those. You can use observations, which is measuring wind speed differences, upwind and downwind of a turbine, or you can indirectly uh, extract the power production of upwind and downwind turbines so that you can see the effect, the actual power uh, effect on power production between different roles of turbines to really understand how wicks 
interact with turbines. So you can you can do this by modeling. You can do it yes. by actual measurements of the turbines, mm -hmm. for example. Um, and those are kind of specific localized effects. What about larger scale, like seasonal effects or things like that? Are you looking into those? So you brought a good point. Uh, so my current project is actually on quantifying uncertainty of wind resource. So we know that the wind don't blow, uh, year, uh, it changes year to year or even seasonally. So say a wind farm costs tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to invest in. So the owners would be worried that, hey, if this wind farm doesn't produce as, as much as it's estimated to produce, then what do they do? So by collecting more and more power production data, we can derive the impacts of seasonality or interannual variability of winds and how it changes across the U.S. So do you do other measurements as well? I think you measured something about doing balloon measurements. Is that correct? So that's another campaign I participated in that was mostly towards um, quantifying the uncertainty of instruments or calibrating different instruments and understanding the boundary layer, which is the uh, lowest uh, atmosphere boundary, pretty much, uh, in our atmosphere. So yeah, I've done balloon launches. Those were pretty fun. Not so fun in high wind conditions. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so in, in graduate school, I've been dealing with or working with a lot of instruments, yes. Well, well that's good. So you, you really get a lot of experience in different environments uh, and different instrumentation and ways of measuring. So yeah, that's mm -hmm. part of the fun of grad school. You get to play with new toys like a Cassini spacecraft and balloons going up in the atmosphere, dragging behind a truck and heavy winds, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> so, um, so you haven't defended yet, but nope. you're still working on this and putting them together into yes. maybe some papers you'll staple together into a thesis or something like that. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so maybe to offer some words of wisdom here, maybe um, Morgan and David, you've already defended. So uh, David, uh, what was your defense like? Um, I mean, it, I guess at that point you, you know, you're, you've gotten through a lot of the, the hard work. Um, but yeah, it was a good, you know, it was open to the public. Um, so anyone can come to these right, theses? Right, right. Or defenses. Yeah. yeah. About 30, 40 minutes. And then, you know, as long as they want to grill me. Yeah. Then they close the door. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. they debate. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, tough questions, but a lot of good, like big, big picture questions, you know, how does this apply to to, uh, you know, the, the history of Mars or Earth or... Uh, so a lot of these bigger picture questions, really. I, I, I remember being told by a professor that, you know, this is when you should be the expert, at least in this one small topic <laughs> right. of this field, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so, Morgan, what was your th the thesis defense like? Uh, it was quite similar. I think that I'd say that you're always harder on yourself than, than others are, so if you can just cut yourself a break then it'll all go a lot, a lot nicer. Well, so, so Joseph, just give yourself a break there. <laughs> Take yourself out to dinner. Ta yeah. yeah, there, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, so after you've gone through all this for X many years in college and grad school, then you're done. <laughs> so what do you do after grad school, Morgan? What, what are your plans? Well, my plans are 
to move down to lovely Fort Worth, Texas, and join the staff of the Fort Worth Museum of Science and Technology, where I'll get to spend uh, my time thinking about how to talk about science and share uh, all of the amazing science that's being done by the people around me with the rest of the world. So this is a museum with a planetarium? Yep, that's right. You'll be able to play with all the the planetarium shows and everything for communication to the public. Exactly, to try to help other people understand uh, just the truly amazing things. You know, of of all the topics we've talked about today, mine is surely by far the least important. Uh, But that doesn't mean it's not interesting, uh, but it means there's a lot of stuff out there that's really vital to to where our world is going, and I want to make sure that other people get to get a little joy out of that. So you'll have to talk about topics that weren't your... expertise when you were in grad school. I suspect I'll talk very little about the rings of Saturn in the rest of my career. <laughs> I bet you'll still show them every now and then. We can only hope. So, so David, what are your post-grad plans? Um, so, I, yeah, I've been looking for a, a postdoctorate, uh, you know, position, um, you know, at an institute or, or university. Um, so I have some feelers out there. Uh, but, you know, I'd really love to, you know, be part of the education uh component and, and teach and, and even, you know, younger grades, maybe some NASA outreach stuff as well. Not to discourage other prospective grads or Joseph here, but uh, what are the, what is the job market like right now for young, recently uh, PhD scientists? Uh, it's a challenging world uh, to continue in because it's such a great thing to do. And because of that, people stay for a long time, you know, well, well beyond when people might retire if they're working in a factory or at an office job. People stick around because it's so much fun. And that makes it difficult to sort of find your way into the woodwork and establish your own little home. And not only finding a job, but in a lot of these, you have to start writing proposals to get funding. Yes, Right. To do the work you want to do. Joseph, what do you foresee in the crystal ball of your future there? I, since you haven't defended yet, have you actively started looking for postdoc work yet? Uh, I've been looking for a little bit, um, not too involvedly. Uh, right now, I have a position at the National Renewable Energy Lab, NREL down in, actually the headquarters down in Golden, but where I work at the Windsight is actually just south of Boulder. So I may stay there for a postdoc since... Um, as you as you all said that um, communicating science effectively is really important and NREL has done that very good. Does anyone want to chime in on what led you down this path you know uh, as as a scientist you know what do you see as a key interest as a as a kid or something in undergrad that really sparked your interest? I think I just like to solve puzzles and I didn't go I to see a lot of nodding yeah. heads here. <laughs> didn't right? go to college intending to be an astronomer, uh, but found that they had a lot of neat puzzles in that area. And I picked up one and started working on it and just kept poking away at it. And, you know, years and years later, here I am. You find out part of the job is you get to make up your own question, your own puzzle, and then try to solve it. So you get to play both sides of it. And that's that can be fun if you can get funded for it. Um you know, what uh, I was going to say, what was grad school like compared to your preconceived experience? I mean, Joseph, was was grad school pretty much like you expected before you went in? I would say yes, because it's very independent work and 
you work very hard to you know towards your dissertation essentially and I, I'm grateful that I have a good research group that we collaborate a lot and we actually work on different instruments that add some fun into my research that get some hands-on experience which yeah that's that's what I expected actually more than I expected oh good so it, it kind of met your expectations David and Morgan were there any surprises on you or was it uh, I no no surprise I don't know if I had really any you know preconceived notions of grad school um I more more work right yeah exactly <laughs> i think it was more fun than yeah, i yeah. expected you know you get to spend all day every day with a bunch of people who are really excited about what they're doing you have a lot of freedom to go off and explore the world and if you can't get a little bit excited by something in the world then there's probably not the direction for you to go in well do you have any any of you have any sage advice at this point in your career looking back for people who are prospective grad students in the sciences? I would say ask for help if you think you need it um, because it's a very independent workspace, but reaching out to colleagues or other folks that may have faced a similar problem before can save you a lot of time. Yeah, you don't need to reinvent the wheel or yep. <laughs> at least have other people help you work through pro the really hard problems. Yeah, and they can teach you and you build bonds and yeah, it's a good experience. There's no area of science uh, available today where you don't have to be a computer programmer. So if you're ah, in high school today and you have the true. chance to take computer class, then do it. If you're in college, take a computer class because without that, you're going to spend a lot of time banging your head against the screen and a lot less time having uh, fun solving puzzles. I definitely so, understand that because I, I always tell people the, the two most valuable skills I ever learned as a scientist was uh, programming and yes. then before that taking a typing class in high school. So, <laughs> Well, I would like to thank you all very much for being on the show. This was really great to hear about grad school. So thank you, Morgan, David, and Joseph. Thank you. Yeah, My thank pleasure. You. We have been talking with Morgan Renberg, David Horvath, and Joseph Lee, all of whom graduated or will soon graduate with their PhDs. They shared with us today the research behind their thesis work and a bit of a peek into the world of graduate school. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by and engineered by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>